I am Sarah. Hello, I'm Lara. We are Bible bitches. Two feminists who met at Wake Forest University School of Divinity and became destined for friendship. Indeed. Sarah, say the line. Say the line. I'm not going to say it's a t- No, I can't say the line. Wait, if you were going to be welcomed aboard a ship about friends, <laughs> what would it be called, Sarah? I won't do it. I won't do if, it. Would it be called the USS Friendship, Sarah? <laughs> Ahoy. Welcome aboard. <laughs> Welcome aboard. I mean, I guess technically it would just be the USS Friend because it's already a ship. Anyways, yes, we met in Divinity School. Today we have a super special guest. Okay, so let's go round, round robin. I am Lara. I'm an ordained minister and a therapist. Sarah, tell us about I, you. I am Sarah. I uh, don't do anything in the field, but I do have a master's in divinity and a master's in women's studies, so Holla. that counts for something. All right, and Ryan, our prestigious guest, tell us about yourself. Are we degreeing it? Is, is that it's, what we're doing? It's whatever you, it's what I did not, but Sarah did, so. I kind of okay. had to because otherwise it'd be like, I do stuff in LA that is in no way pertinent to this. Okay, but I would like to revise mine. I have a Master of Divinity and a Master in Marriage and Family Therapy. Um, Ryan, please tell us about yourself. I have a PhD in the hard knocks of life. No, I do. I will shout out because you did Penn State University, Wake Forest University, and the Appalachian State University in that order. So yeah, I currently uh, have the privilege of running an organization called Define American. Been doing that for about five years now. It's a, a group founded by the Pulitzer Prize winning Emmy nominated filmmaker and journalist Jose Antonio Vargas, uh, who came out as undocumented in 2011 to found our organization as the largest online bank of immigrant-related uh, stories anywhere on the internet. And we spend our days fighting anti-immigrant hate through the power of story. That means filmmaking, but it also means influencing entertainment media and uh, news media and asking the question that I think is the most important question, frankly, of our age here in the United States, at least, and that is, how do you define American? So yeah, um, before that, used to run U.S. campaigns for a little organization called change.org. And before that, I had a number of years working for and and building a community organization called Change, Communities Helping All Neighbors and Gain Empowerment. Uh, We were the largest faith-based community organizing group in the South at that time. Wow, that is quite a resume. Can I add one thing to that resume, Ryan? I'm sleeping with him. Scandal. Scandal. It's, it's like the best part of that resume. It's the best part of that resume. Be it's honest. true. I actually had someone once get really, really mad at me that I didn't put you on my resume. What? Yeah, it was a whole argument. How would you put me on your resume? Would you be like, check this babe out? Like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they expected to have at least an entire line about my nuptial relationship get out what did they say how strong it was well uh it was a presbyterian minister i'm not gonna say the name because there's still a lot of presbyterian ministers out there they were really angry that i would not uh as a part of the interview process speak a lot about my marital relationship that's insane 
Yeah, and the the thing was at the time we were in North Carolina, and um, it was certainly not legal for everyone who wanted to get married uh, to do so. And so I, I felt pretty strongly that that was not appropriate <laughs> in the interview process. And uh, it was an interesting conversation about that, where she then revealed that she felt like it was important if anyone had a family to reveal that family in the interview. Yeah. So maybe don't maybe don't do that future people who are interviewing other people. But as you might have caught on from our discussion, it's not that scandalous because we've actually been married for like 10 years. Maybe a little scandalous. It's pretty scandalous. You're scandalized, Sarah. I'm going to have to edit all this out. It's really inappropriate. (laughs) We've crossed Sarah's line. She's like, hard pass. Yeah. There's a line in the sand. I just drew it. It's right here. I know. I can't tell if this podcast is getting more or less scandalous this episode, but yeah. uh, but that's basically like what I'm trying to discern about every day of my life. So that's fine. It's fine. It's good. Um, there are some who would suggest that two Baptist ministers being married in the South for a decade, having sexual relations with one another is pretty scandalous. Don't worry. They only do it through a sheet with a tiny hole in it. <laughs> Okay, so Ryan, as we record this, several things are happening this week. Immigrant children are being separated from their parents at the border. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the White House press secretary, was scolded by, I shit you not, a Playboy reporter named Brian Karam, who asked Sanders if she had any empathy as a parent for children being separated from parents and thrown in cages at the border. You know we're in trouble when Playboy is now the voice of reason. Jeff Sessions, our attorney general, cited Romans 13 to defend child separation at the border, saying, quote, persons who violate the law of our nation are subject to prosecution. I would cite to you the Apostle Paul and his clear and wise command in Romans 13 to obey the laws of the government because God has ordained them for the purpose of order. Orderly and lawful processes are good in themselves and protect the weak and lawful. Okay, so after running through this, I have loads of questions. Number one of which is, what the fuck? Ryan, can you help us with that? I cannot even. Ryan has lost his ability to even. He can't, and that he can't. Yes. One thing that I will say is that generally speaking, we should be viewing everything immigration related and the majority of actions of the current administration within the frame of white nationalism. And the ultimate goal, regardless of the hyperbole of the media tactics, which we keep falling for, the ultimate goal is power. And in order to obtain that power, they need to imprison and or deport as many people of color as they possibly can. And so the one thing that hate groups and those who support the Trump administration, as evidenced by the more than nine former staff members of some of the largest anti-immigrant hate groups in the country, who now work at senior positions in the administration, including the uh, Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, the one thing they recognize that most progressives have yet to is that our demographics in the United States are shifting. And so many of us who believe in diversity and have had meaningful relationships that are cross-cultural 
don't see that as a threat. It's certainly being manipulated and a, a lot of folks are scared and the administration has taken advantage of that and would like to hold out on to power as much as they can. So just to summarize, like I, I actually think everything they're doing is always just going to be lined up with that goal uh, in mind of imprisoning or deporting as many people of color as they can so that white folk can maintain uh, political power in the United States for as long as possible. Can you first like back up a little bit and tell us exactly what is happening at the border? And like, I mean, we're all assuming it's the Mexican border, but like, can we just clarify that piece too? Just yeah, yeah. It's funny when we say the border now because of the, yeah. the narrative that our minds automatically think about the the Rio Grande Valley when when actually have a pretty uh, massive border on our northern side as well as two big old oceans. So yeah, I mean the the border has been a tenuous place for a while now, for a few decades actually. Both Democratic and Republican administrations have used the border in different ways politically when they needed to. But what's happening now is very similar to what happened last in 2014 when I was when I was at the border. I'll be going down again probably in a, in a few weeks, depending on how things go. But what we're experiencing is the, what, what most folks refer to as the Northern Triangle of countries. So we're talking about um, Nicaragua, especially Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador are tenuous places. And so every few summers we see a spike in immigration. And most of this is because in, generally speaking, the late 90s, we deported the Clinton administration, hundreds of gang members that had been hardened gang members. Many of them were not gang members until they were in the United States to these countries. We just deported them in mass. And once back in those countries, they started to organize for power. And there was some CIA uh, business that has been happening uh, for a few decades, uh, American influence, certainly economic influence, uh, forces like NAFTA. We've had a lot of forces at play in this region, but basically it has resulted in a few countries that have very large cartels that often get called gangs, uh, but I actually think the word gang is too kind for what these folks look like. They're, they're multi-billion dollar cartels that run the country and create a situation where if, if you are not a part of or participating in their efforts, they will kill you. And so most of the people uh, we at Define American have had staff at the border for a while now. And uh, every single migrant that we talk to, every single one during this current crisis has been fleeing these um, cartels and has had a, a family member killed in recent weeks or has been threatened with their life. And so uh, one mother that we interviewed years ago, very similar story. She owned a small business and a, and a pretty large farm. Actually, they were trying to recruit her son. The cartels went across the street, killed the neighbor boy, which was his best friend, uh, took his severed head to her front door and said, uh, if your son doesn't join us within 24 hours, he's next. So, of course, what's a mother do? You know, run for the border. And a lot of folks think, oh, why would they, why would they do that? Or why would they send the kid alone? Well, take a place like Honduras where there's a 2% prosecution rate for murder, 1% conviction rate. So one of the highest murder capitals in the world, 98% of those 
aren't even ever going to get brought to court because of the brokenness of the, of the systems down there, which I'll reiterate, we have had some role in creating over the years. So I think we need to ask why people are coming in the first place. And then that helps us set the stage for what happens when they get there, which I'm happy to talk about as well. And actually you read my mind because um, first of all, that's horrific. I had the privilege of doing a study abroad in Mexico. Um, I was about one class away from minoring in Spanish and got to live in Mexico for a summer. And I will never understand the level of dehumanization in this country of Mexican people or Hispanic people, Latino people, but especially I think Mexico, um, our Southern border, we tend to really dehumanize that country and the people from it. And the, the level with which the people I talked to were like, I don't really understand whenever I come to the United States, why it is that you are so, you know, caustic towards Mexican people. Like what, what is going on? And they, as they shared their stories about, what they experienced in America, the level of racism, hatred, lack of people wanting to help them was horrific to me. And since then, I've always wanted to really make America stand up to its supposed values, I guess I should say, of, of wanting to welcome folks that we say we do. And then, you know, it comes down to what the policy is. Let's live up to what we say we want to do. Being the best country in the world, if we say we're going to be, I don't think we are right now, let's live up to it. But I want to follow up Ryan, you said that we have a role to play in this. And I'm kind of wondering, because from what I learned whenever I lived there, it seemed like Mexico was sort of a, uh, a place where people came through in terms of the drug trade, trying to get the drugs to the United States, because in the United States, we consume a massive amount of drugs. I think we can say that the D.A.R.E. campaign under the Reagan administration was a complete and utter failure, because in, in the United States, we consume massive amounts of illegal drugs. Can you tell us a little bit of, uh, more about how that drug trade we're we're kind of impl- like completely complicit in that and and why people might show up on our border because of that yeah i mean it's it's in part simple law of supply and demand i mean the demand is in the united states and the supply is in most of the countries that we're getting the largest number of, of immigrants to and there's a fascinating study that came out a couple of years ago when we started noticing the largest numbers of global migration that showed that the majority of immigrants when they uh, migrated whether by choice or by force and two years ago we started seeing record numbers of forced migration globally uh, since, for the first time since the enslavement of people from Africa. The, the study showed that the majority of migrants were choosing to come to nations that had formerly been colonized by them. So it's no wonder that in the United States we don't talk about this a lot because they don't ever come across our southern border. One of the biggest, uh, the, well, the fastest actually growing uh, group of, of immigrants is, is our API community coming largely from the Philippines. And of course, we used to own the Philippines. We invaded and owned the Philippines. A lot of it's convenient that we forget that part of our history. So yes, I mean, we, um, the reason that these cartels are not just gangs anymore that are doing violence in small neighborhoods in their countries and are now multi-billion dollar industries is because of United States drug money. And so these problems are interconnected. And as much as the media narrative would like for you to believe and certainly the hate groups who are utilizing mainstream media in many, in, in many ways to spread this false narrative. You know, they want you to believe that folk are coming here to uh, take jobs and, um, you know, take advantage of some sort of broken system and, and porous border. 
anyone who's actually been to the border and anybody who's cracked the history book uh, would actually, you know, recognize that that's just could not be further from the truth. So yeah, it's pretty sad. I mean, we've got these families that are fleeing for their life who are now coming to the border. And in recent weeks, Attorney General Jeff Sessions has uh, started what he calls a no tolerance policy. So our immigration laws have not been updated in decades, regardless of the economic and global shifts. And it used to be that we, uh, like almost every country in the world, allowed folk to claim asylum in our country. And people have claimed for years asylum for a number of reasons. What Sessions did without the passage of any law was go down to the border and say, if you come to legally claim asylum, but you're claiming it because you're fleeing violence or domestic violence, rape, sexual assault, we will immediately prosecute you. And so they did that. And then under the same zero tolerance policy, they say, if he came out later and said, if you come with a child, we will immediately uh, separate you from that child, which according to the United Nations is a violation of international human rights, uh, as it should be. From a technical point of view, in my perspective, it's no real different from, it's certainly internment of people. There's no doubt about that, but it's no difference than, than kidnapping. I mean, my uh, team at Define American at the border and some of our partners have been to some of these uh, locations already in the last few weeks. There's over 2,300 children, and many of them are nonverbal because they came as toddlers, you know. And so they're immediately being ripped from their parents. And when asked for their name, if they're nonverbal yet, they can't give their name. And when they're asked to describe their parents, it's awfully difficult to do so in a way that wouldn't describe a number of potential parents. So there's no real plan to reunite these 2,300 kids. And that's why it's so immoral. Which I would say, you know, being a therapist and kind of being trained in the human life cycle, that is really detrimental and traumatic to a child because they are getting ripped away from that attachment from their parents. And, and, and my understanding is that they're not allowed to um, be touched in these facilities. Um, no, no one can touch them or soothe them, which that has been studied in, num- in, in numerous studies about what that does to a child, the level of neglect. So, and, and I saw, I think it was the president of the American Pediatric Association recently said that that was the definition of child abuse with regard to neglect, which would definitely be something that we would look at as therapists whenever we're consulting the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual, you know, if someone has endured child abuse or not. But I know we can't stop there. We have to keep asking questions. Uh, So I want to toss it back to you, Sarah. Yeah, um, I kind of wanted to circle it back to what Laura was originally talking about with Jeff Sessions and his use of the scripture to defend family separation and child jailing. Can Can you talk a little bit about that? Like reflect on what is a good response? Like what does that mean for him to be using Romans 13? How are people in the church responding to that, that kind of thing? And can we just call him by his middle name, Beauregard? Because <laughs> the douchey middle name that really, I think, harkens back to his Confederate roots. So let's just call him Beauregard from this point on. Are you okay with that, Ryan? You, 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 you can call him uh, whatever you want. I've, I've heard- <laughs> oh, I got a lot of uh, yeah, I was, I was I was actually in a in a an interview w- with a journalist one time, and and I maybe Freudian slip, I don't know, used Jeffrey Beauregard Sessions a few times, and they cut me off and said, 
why are you doing that? You know, I know what you're doing. That's ridiculous. You don't have to, you know, you're trying to make a point without making a point and that's not respectful uh, and everything. And I said, what, isn't that just his name? <laughs> what kind, like, of, what kind of point did they assume you were making? Like what was the subtext there? Well, I think they assumed I was calling him a, a racist. What I explained to the journalists is I said, look, I, I am perfectly happy calling him whatever you would like for me to refer him as if, if it would stop from distracting you from the actual point that I'm trying to make, because I don't have enough time to unpack for you uh, how systemic racism and whiteness has operated in the United States and how generation after generation, things like names as well as uh, ideologies have been passed down to perpetuate that uh, original sin of the creation of whiteness and racism. So, yeah, so I won't call Jeff Beauregard anymore uh, too often. I will. All the time. I'm just going to call him JBS. (laughs) Sweet. Jeebs. Jeebs. (laughs) Yeah, so I do think it's important to unpack Romans 13 because this is not the first time that the Trump administration and a number of supporters have utilized Romans 13. And every time it's used, I hope every listener understands that that's the same passage that was used primarily to justify the legal enslavement of people in this country for years. That was the same passage that was justified by original folk, mostly from Europe, who came and ended up trying to commit uh, both actual genocide and then later cultural genocide on native people in this country. So it's got a storied history because I think we continue to to not unpack it. And I know a lot of Christians have some challenges with Paul and we love him and we hate him. I love Paul, but I think it's really, really important that we understand what's happening in this particular passage. And then let me also just say, I'm gonna go ahead and say a shout out to Sarah Huckabee Sanders and Jeff Sessions both who I would just like to kindly request that you keep on reading that Romans 13 passages because there's a a few things in there you may not be aware of. They're actually pro-immigrant and you may want to listen to Jesus Christ a little bit while you pick up your Romans 13. I'm just, just a small suggestion. That's why at least the next 40 days I will be tweeting at Jeff Sessions and Sarah Huckabee Sanders because it seemed to me when they quoted this, when they were doing so, in defense of kidnapping children, potentially indefinitely, you, you uh, probably should consider reading the rest of Scripture. So, yeah, I mean, Romans 13, most scholars believe the primary pastoral and ecclesiastical concern that Paul had at that time was church unity. So Paul is writing to this small group of Christians in Rome, and Paul was one of these guys who had this radical belief at the time that Jesus was going to come back. And not just sometime, but like could be any day, like any minute. Like by the time I get done writing this letter to you Romans, Jesus could be here on a unicorn and on a cloud. And so like- I hope he's coming back on a unicorn. I would, I would be a little bit angry if he doesn't, to be honest. Yeah, so basically, like, it's important to just recognize, here is Paul writing a letter to the place that was the seat of government in his time, saying, can y'all just quit arguing? Please, just quit arguing. So that was the primary objective. 
But what Paul would also go on to suggest, which is the same thing that I really think is important for anyone who isn't just a person of faith, but is concerned with ethics, is that we really need, when we listen to Jeff Sessions, to understand that there is a vast difference between criminality and morality. Now, first asterisk, the overwhelming majority of folk coming across the border are committing no crime. Now, I know that's a shock. But being in this country without the proper authorization is not a crime. That's according to the Supreme Court Justice Kennedy. Crossing the border and intentionally applying for asylum is a legal act. It's only Jeff Sessions who said, you can no longer legally do that and we're just going to prosecute you. So that's the the asterisk on that. But I just want to make it really, really clear that slavery in this country was legal. It was legal to prevent women from voting. It It was legal to have folk from different races not able to marry. The Holocaust in Germany was legal. However, it was illegal to be a part of the Underground Railroad. It was illegal to marry across racially at one point in this country. It was illegal to try to hide uh, Jewish folk who were trying to survive the Holocaust. And so I do think that that is a call for us to readdress scripture, but also regardless of whether or not you are a person of faith, to reconsider in this very moment where 2,300 kids still remain, even after the executive order, ununited with their parents. And when every two minutes in this country, someone is separated from their family through deportation, even before this quote unquote zero tolerance policy, it's a call for us to evaluate what our role is on morality, regardless of criminality, and regardless of this taken way out of context Romans 13 passage. Well, to me, it goes back to like man's law, which let's be honest, man's law, because only a dick would do this. Uh, Man's law is not God's law. And this isn't just, this isn't fair, this isn't equitable, and this isn't right. So it's just one more piece of bullshit in man's history in the United States and beyond. That's why I only read herstory. (laughs) Hashtag herstory. (laughs) Um, so I have some questions. So I, uh, I just went to this book club on Monday night, a feminist book club, and we were reading excluded by Julia Serrano, Mm -hmm. who is a MT, MTF trans woman. And she writes about her experiences, uh, being part of a, being part of the feminist community as a trans woman and how she is very much excluded from most feminist communities, especially like radical feminist communities, because she still has a penis and because of her history, because she grew up like as a boy. And so therefore the argument is that she isn't able to like really participate or like really know the feminist, the feminist struggle or the female struggle. And, and one of the points that she makes is that at some point you have to realize that you can't create change from within the system, that you have to step outside of the system to create real change. And I I wonder about that in a few different ways, but especially in this context, like how do human beings create change when we're stuck in this system? Like how do we separate ourselves from the system? When you say system, I just want to clarify, do you mean kind of like almost like our silos? Yeah, like our silos. I mean, I am burdened with the and I still participate in it, obviously, but like burdened with the idea that all parts of our society in some way degrade the life of another person 
And, you know, and, and just through inaction, even in this case, like especially through inaction or um, misinformation, those kinds of things, we are an inactive participant in what is going on down there. And I don't know how to rectify that, I guess. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I do think it's important, which I, I think maybe what you're getting at, uh, Laura, with your question to unpack this idea of systems, because there are always multiple systems and multiple networks at play in any society. And the community organizer in me believes that the best participatory democracy is rich when there's equal exchange between the sort of corporate and economic sphere uh, the government sphere and what we call civil society and that power really rests in civil society. And the reason that I say that is, you know, there's this wonderful word called intersectionality that we in the progressive world in particular have been using. And while some would brush it aside as cute or inevitable, it's important to me because the history of how systems have utilized power there's a pretty consistent strategy of the few to separate marginalized communities from one another and act as if their interests are dissimilar in order for them to maintain power, even though they are no longer the majority. And so I think it's really relevant in this case, actually, Sarah, and I'm glad that you brought it up because the big fear that most of the white nationalist hate groups have now, and, and we should remember that the Trump administration has now hired multiple former hate group members to lead these departments is that white people will no longer be the majority. And so this demographics is destiny that we once thought that inevitably we just had to wait a generation for more progress, more freedom. I actually no longer believe after studying communities like that in South Africa, where the, the majority population was without power for a long time under apartheid. The group now, what's happening is that where we once in America used to think of folks as Irish Americans or German Americans, or, you know, folks were proud of their Scottish roots, uh, you know, or English roots. Now we're seeing, unfortunately, this increase in folk who are just identifying primarily as white. Well, and like, that's the only option, like on those, on those tests or on an application or whatever, it's just like white other. Ryan, was the point that you're trying to make that white people became homogenized to, to create this like sort of veneer or illusion that we're the majority class? I think that's exactly the point, Sarah. Yeah. I mean, there, in the late 1700s, first in the state of Virginia, there, there was a legal creation of, of whiteness. And at that time in our nation's history, there were white folk, you know, being enslaved. And it was done in, in order to diminish the anger that was coming from people who were in poverty at that time and being exploited. And so the assumption, which has proven to be correct, was that if you can convince someone that you are better than them because you take on some sort of other identity, they'll have more of an affinity for you. Well, in some ways, it's become a bit of a slur insofar as like people of other colors sort of like homogenizing into what is stereotypically white. So, you know, like the slur of Twinkie or Oreo, right? And Trevor Noah, like I read his book, Born a Crime, where he, uh, the host of The Daily Show, he was born under apartheid South Africa. Um, he's also done like multiple stand up um, and is now, you know, the host of The Daily Show. 
he talks about how whenever he comes to the United States, just to fuck with us, he, you know, how it like lets you check a box. Well, his mother's black and his father's white and he checked the white box and people looked at him like he was crazy. So like this system of checking a box in the United States is still completely fucked because it's, it's still based on the one drop rule, right? That, mm-hmm. And so it's still meant to completely divide and homogenize different groups and do that based on some, sort, some sense of hierarchy. A hundred percent. And the irony is that in the country that is unique in that we're the only nation that in our main harbor has a statue that says, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to be free, has always had an immigration policy that was discriminatory based upon background and race. At one time, we were discriminating against German. And it was only until 19, in 1965 that we started having more racial equity across the board. And then all of a sudden, our country starts becoming more diverse. And so now we're getting that backlash. In many ways, I would suggest because we still cannot shed this yoke of the cancer of whiteness and be proud of this identity that for the most part, unless we were like some of my ancestors native to this land or some folk that were enslaved uh, and ancestors of people who were enslaved, we all come from somewhere. And we can't said that because in my view, we have yet to tell America's whole story. We've yet to reconcile with our two original sins of the enslavement of Africans and and the mass genocide committed on folk. And so whether, until we address that and start to reconcile that and recognize what is happening to us, where we're being separated from one another based upon these identities, you know, I think we're going to continue to struggle because we are allowing someone else to define what an American means as opposed to embracing the reality that that we too have a part of creating that definition ourselves. So as we start to wrap up, I like if I was going to leave somebody with a thought and I want each of us to to kind of, you know, talk about what that would be. For me, it is I wish that everyone could learn their their immigration story and I realize that for people who are robbed of that, like African Americans, that that is really difficult to do and maybe only possible via some sense of um, like DNA test, which is cost prohibitive and I think should be completely allowed uh, and funded by the state because they were robbed of that and part of reparations. But so at least for white people of means, I think um, learn your immigration story. If it takes ancestry.com, if it takes, you know, DNA, learn your immigration story because you're an immigrant, you are, and you you came here and took some native land. So learn learn what that story is. Learn it. And I promise you will have more of an affinity for the people trying to come to this country afterwards and be more likely to come into dialogue with them. Yeah. And for those, uh, you, you know, you, you mentioned the challenge of Black Americans uh, to look up their own ancestry. Henry Louis Gates, Jr., famous professor out of Harvard, has a lot of resources in that regard. So check out, uh, just Google Henry Louis Gates Jr.'s uh, website and you can find some some resources there. I, I would just suggest that this time where many of us feel the way, Sarah, that you articulated, that we're questioning where we are as a nation, we're questioning who we are, whether we're being complicit in immorality and the harming of thousands and thousands of people, I would suggest a couple of things. If you're a person of faith, or even if you're not, we need to recognize that Jesus himself was a refugee 
forced from his own land and did not get permission from the government that he was entering or coming back to, to go from place to place. The second thing I would just suggest is that all of us in this moment need to find hope amidst the fog of despair. And I refuse to allow the people who want to define American as one only meant for white men to own that flag. And we have a choice. We can either be the country that is proud to have borne out the Harvey Milks, the Dolores Huertas, the Martin Luther Kings, the Sojourner Truths, is proud to have overcome, you know, great hurdles to liberate folk and on a pathway to freedom, even though it's really, really been tough to get there. Or we can give in and define it and, and allow other people to define it for us. Yeah, my, my disillusionment isn't, isn't so easily placated. And, and that's because the disillusionment is more multifaceted than that. And the system is much greater than what I could offer. Like, what can I possibly do kind of deal? But it's just baby steps. Just it's doing just, that whole butterfly in a jungle thing. You it's know, like Jeff Goldblum with the butterfly and the... The butterfly effect, yeah. Um, Brian, thank you so much for being on the show. And can we, thanks for having can me. we just encourage people to go to defineamerican.com because y'all are doing some really great stuff to fight the bullshit at the border. And I think the crap in our culture that defines American only as white male asshole conservatives. And so please go to defineamerican.com and look at the resources. I really appreciate the work y'all are doing. So let's do some shout outs. Thank you all for listening. We are so excited to see you all at the wild goose. The goose. If you have no idea how you found us, you can re-find us on iTunes and Stitcher and SoundCloud. Um, just search for Bible Bitches. Um, you can also find us on social media, right? At Bible Bitches on Twitter and yes. Bible Bitches fan page. Yes, and um, you can always email us at BibleBetches, B-E-T-C-H-E-S, at gmail.com. I promise we check it um, every quarter. And Sarah <laughs> checks it once a year. <laughs> for, I check it in... A fortnight. <laughs> a fortnight. I check it in May and August and November. All the solstices. <laughs> yes. Also, huge thanks and big shout out to Engaged Gaze for hosting our podcast. With a Z. With a Z, Engaged Gaze, G-A-Z-E dot com. They're doing a really cool series on Westworld right now, so you guys should definitely check that out. Of course, we love you, Yo Eves. We love your new song that you just put out. It's amazing. On pubic hair. So good. So good. It's so, so good. good. I, was, I watched it three times in one day. I loved it so much, y'all. Yeah. So, Yo Eves, go check her out. We're using she's letting us use her song tnt for the intro and outro and aaron at aaron doodles on twitter we oh, owe so him. <laughs> he has done all of our artwork and he's doing all of our swag which we will have swag at wild goose and we love you everyone who's listening um absolutely if you have any questions if you have any thoughts let just us know us. just tweet, tweet us, us. We'll, we'll, we, we're pretty active on the tweeter. We're going to catch you next time. It is very, I'm not sure what our schedule is, but it is very possible the next time you hear us, it will be a live show from the goose. So yeah. we'll talk to you soon. Catch on the flip side. Bye. Bye.